0: Thank you so much for choosing to worship with us today. It's great to see all of you here uh, today and just a wonderful time of lifting our voices in praise to God. And now we get to open our uh, ears and lift them to God and hear from him. Before we get into the word uh, this morning, just want to remind you that tonight is our annual Thanksgiving uh, service. And that'll be at six o'clock here in this room uh, tonight. We're going to be glorifying Jesus Christ, who is most worthy of our uh, praise. We're going to be singing some songs of, of worship uh, tonight, and then we're going to open up the floor and give you the opportunity to share uh, a testimony of thanksgiving for what God is doing in your life. So we would encourage you to take this afternoon and just be thinking about what God has done in your life over this past year that you are most grateful for, just think about one or two of those uh, things and come tonight prepared to uh, just share a one or two-minute testimony of Thanksgiving uh, to the congregation that is uh, gathered here uh, this evening. And also come tonight uh, ready to hear what your brothers and sisters have to share. I guarantee you, if you come tonight, you will say that this um, occasion is one of the highlights of the year for you, a wonderful time of edification and rejoicing in the Lord together, and that's tonight in this room at 6 o'clock, and you're all invited, and there are refreshments afterwards, okay? Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter uh, 49. Genesis chapter 49, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, and as we continue in our study of this book. We come to Genesis 49 verse 1. My goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through 12. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Final Blessings Up Through Judah. Final Blessings Up Through Judah. And may God speak to us through his word this morning and encourage our hearts. Before my uh, two boys uh, went off to college out of state at different points in time, uh, for both of them, I wrote a blessing, and on the day of their departure for college to travel across country, I gathered the family around and put my hand on my boy's shoulder and spoke the words of blessing that I had written out uh, for them. On both of those occasions, I jokingly asked them if they would like to place their hand under my thigh, (laughs) and they politely declined. But knowing that my sons were about to travel thousands of miles away and be gone for months at... A time caused my heart as a father to well up with words of blessing and destiny that seemed appropriate to each of my sons. And it felt satisfying for me to unload my heart as a father and express my love for them by blessing them in this way. When my oldest son, uh, Brendan, uh, left home once and for all to move to Illinois. In March of 2014, I could not sleep the night after he drove away. I tossed and turned through the night, and I could feel my heart heaving with worry and with hope and with love for my son and with a passionate longing for him to be a lover of Christ. I got out of bed in the wee hours of the morning, and I typed out the contents of My heart, and I emailed it to him. The letter was full of pleadings and warnings and love and words of destiny for my son. My son no longer uses that email address, but he still has access to it and he keeps it on his iPhone. There's only one email that to this day still sits in his inbox that has never been deleted. And it's that one. In our passage today, we come to a powerful moment when a tired old father speaks passionate words to his 12 sons. And he does so just prior to a moment of departure. Only in this case, it's Jacob who will be leaving his sons once and for all. In Genesis 48, we were told that Jacob was sick and on his deathbed and about to die. And in Genesis 49, he takes his last opportunity to speak words of destiny and blessing over his sons. In fact, observe what happens beginning in verse 1. The text says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Literally, the Hebrew can be translated, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. And in using that expression, in the last days, Jacob is using the same expression used by later Old Testament prophets this means that he fully intends to prophesy to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and the tradition of the prophets. It also means that his prophecies will extend all the way to the consummation of history, to the Messianic age, when the one spoken about in Genesis chapter 3, verse. 15 will finally come and crush the head of the serpent as God promised. So you can imagine Jacob's sons would have eagerly answered Jacob's call and assembled with high anticipation, ready to hear their futures being told by their godly father who will be speaking words of prophecy over them, words that will encompass the full sweep of Human history. There's something else that's going on here in Genesis 49 that we should point out. According to this chapter, what Jacob will be speaking are more than just words of prophecy, but also words of blessing. After Jacob speaks to each of his 12 sons, we will be told the following in verse 28. The writer will say this is what their father said to them. When he blessed them, he blessed them, everyone, with the blessing appropriate to him. So after Jacob calls for his sons to assemble by his bedside, the sons give heed to Jacob's call, ready to hear the prophetic words of blessing that their father will be speaking regarding each of them and their descendants. And with all of them assembled, their sense of anticipation must have been palpable as every son leaned forward to hear these final words of blessing and prophecy from their dying father. And all we're going to have time to do this morning is look at verses 1 through 12. And in those verses, we'll observe six prophetic affirmations that Jacob speaks in his final words of blessing to his first four sons. And the first prophetic affirmation that we find is, number one, he foretells that Reuben, his oldest son, will not have preeminence because of his sin with Bilhah. Listen to what Jacob says to Reuben, his firstborn son. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Wow, those are great words, wonderful words to start things off with. Jacob is acknowledging Reuben as, indeed, his firstborn son, which he was. He describes him as my might, as the beginning of my strength. And then he uses the word preeminent twice, describing Reuben as preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Anyone looking at all of Jacob's sons lined up, probably would have clearly seen that Reuben was the most physically powerful son. Early in his life, he must have been Jacob's pride and joy and the object of Jacob's highest hopes as his firstborn son. I don't think you can start a blessing any better than how Jacob begins his blessing for Reuben here, which makes what Jacob says next all the more Stunning. Jacob's countenance changes from one of pride in verse 3, pride in his son, to one of revulsion with an accusing finger pointing at Reuben. Jacob speaks in verse 4, and he says, in verse 4, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. When you think of the description of Reuben as being uncontrolled as water, think of waves that are driven and tossed by the wind. Think of a tsunami breaking upon a coastland, smashing into buildings and causing wreckage wherever it goes. What did Reuben do to cause wreckage? Jacob says in verse 4, you shall not have preeminence because you went up To your father's bed, then you defiled it. This accusation takes us back to Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, where we learn that Reuben sexually defiled Jacob's wife Bilhah after Jacob's wife Rachel had died. Reuben probably had some rationale for doing what he did with Bilhah. And we talked about this back when we were in Genesis 35. He may have wanted to defile Bilhah in order to ensure that his mother Leah would become Jacob's leading wife now that Rachel is dead and he removes Bilhah from contention. It's also possible that Reuben was just simply being governed by his lust for Bilhah. It's also possible that Reuben wanted to show his dominance over his father by sleeping with his concubine, just as Absalom, the son of David, will sleep with his father's concubines in a future day. But whatever Reuben's motives were, they don't matter to Jacob in the least. What he did was a sin. It was an offense to God and to Jacob. Back in Genesis chapter. Thirty-five, verse twenty-two. We read the account of Reuben's sin, and here's what the text says: It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel or Jacob heard of it. And all we're told in Genesis thirty-five, twenty-two is that Jacob heard about what Reuben had done. But now here in Genesis 49, we're learning what Jacob intends to do about it. Reuben is sitting here hoping to receive the preeminent status that belongs to the firstborn son of Jacob. Yet Jacob looks at him and says, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. It's possible that what Reuben Had done wasn't known to anyone at the time, but Bilhah and Jacob when he found out. But now what was done in secret is declared openly to Reuben and in front of all of his brothers. At the end of verse four, Jacob speaks to all of his other sons and tells them what Reuben did. Jacob turns away from Reuben and says to his sons, he went up to my couch Now everyone knows, and they now know why Reuben will not be receiving the rights of firstborn. Be sure your sin will find you out, the Bible says. What a man sows that he will also reap, the Bible says. In Luke 12, verse 2, Jesus says, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. And if you doubt the truth of those words, ask Reuben what he thinks of them, for he's experiencing the truth of them here. You may hear what Jacob is saying to Reuben, and you may say this blessing, quote unquote, that Jacob is speaking to Reuben doesn't sound like much of a blessing at all. Well, I get that. But there actually is blessing in Jacob's words if you have the eyes to see the blessing. As one writer says, this solemn rebuke was the best thing that could have befallen Reuben. Just like we benefit when someone exposes us and speaks hard truth to us about something that we have done. Reuben now has opportunity to learn from his father's rebuke and become a better man. Beyond that, think about what Jacob is saying and what he's not saying here. Jacob is not rejecting Reuben from being one of his sons. He's not banishing Reuben from the coming people of Israel who will settle in the land of Canaan. He's merely saying that he will not have preeminence in Israel, but he will get to be a part of Israel. And it's actually a blessing to Reuben and to his brothers that Reuben will not have the preeminence because that would not have been good for anyone, including for Reuben. Such preeminence should belong to a son of nobler character who would handle this preeminence in a better way than Reuben ever would have. You'll be interested to know that later in Israel's history, Reuben will actually receive an allotment of land in Canaan on the east side of the Jordan while it's true that no prophet, priest, or king ever came from the tribe of Reuben, his descendants were a meaningful part of the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 5, we learn that there will be 12,000 descendants of Reuben who will be among God's faithful witnesses during the coming tribulation period and in Revelation twenty-one twelve, we learn that Reuben's name will be on one of the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. That's grace. That's amazing grace for Reuben. Nonetheless, these are Jacob's words to Reuben on this occasion in Genesis 49, and there are 11 more sons to go. Imagine being Jacob's other sons and hearing what Jacob has just said to Reuben, I would be shaking in my boots. Jacob's sons would also be asking the question right now, if the rights of firstborn will not be going to Reuben, then who will receive the rights of firstborn? Simeon was Jacob's secondborn son, and his heart might have leaped at the thought that the rights of firstborn would now be going to him. Well, he's about to find out if that will be the case because he and his younger brother Levi are next. This brings us to the second prophetic affirmation that Jacob speaks in his final words a blessing to his first four sons. Number two, Jacob foretells that Simeon and Levi will be scattered in Israel because of their sin in Shechem. You will recall that in Genesis chapter 34, the king of Shechem had a son who raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Jacob's sons responded to that by deceiving the men of Shechem and saying to them, if you will all be circumcised... If all the men of the city of Shechem will be circumcised, then we will let you marry our sister and we will be one people together. The men of Shechem agreed amazingly, and all the men of the city got circumcised. Then in Genesis chapter 34, verse 25, the text says, Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon And Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. After the killing, Jacob rebukes his sons, Simeon and Levi, for what they have done. And he tells them about the danger that they have now put the family in. Simeon and Levi are unrepentant, however, they defend themselves and say in verse 31 of Genesis 34, should he treat our sister as a harlot? But Their justification carried no weight with Jacob. You don't retaliate against a man who rapes your sister by killing every male in the city. That's way beyond bounds. And now, decades later, Jacob is... Here on his deathbed, and he looks at Simeon and Levi together, and he speaks about them both. He doesn't even speak to them, but only speaks about them. In verse 5, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their council, let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. How many of you have the King James, the old King James Version? Raise your hand. Okay, we've got a few. The King James Version says, And in their self-will they digged down a wall. But most modern translations understand Jacob is referring to oxen here rather than a wall either oxen plural or an ox singular. The ancient Greek Septuagint understands Jacob's words as referring to oxen as well. And the Hebrew here reads that they hamstrung oxen, meaning that they cut the tendons in the back legs of oxen, leaving them lame. What's the sense in that? They either did this with multiple oxen or with one ox in particular. We're not told back in Genesis 34 that Simeon and Levi lamed any oxen in this way, but we learn here that evidently they did such things when they ransacked the city of Shechem, showing heartless cruelty to animals in the fury of their wrath, and God duly notes that. Obviously, Simeon and Levi were vicious men when they got angry. Shechem rapes their sister, and they retaliate by killing every man in the city of Shechem and even laming oxen. What did the oxen do to deserve that? And in the face of such gratuitous violence, Jacob speaks in verse 6. And says, let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly or their coming together. Jacob is saying essentially that there is no telling what these two brothers will cook up when they are together and able to take counsel together. Whatever glory will come to me, Jacob, in the future it will not come to me through these two being together. And now Jacob levels a curse in verse 7. He says, curse be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. He then says, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. As harsh as. These words are, there is grace here for those who have the eyes to see. In the first place, we should note that while Jacob curses Simeon and Levi's anger and wrath, he's not cursing Simeon and Levi. He's just cursing their sin. That said, Simeon and Levi will experience consequences for their display of anger at the end of verse 7, Jacob declares, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. But guys, even in this, there is amazing grace. The word translated disperse is a good word that means to allot or apportion or divide. Jacob is positively affirming that Simeon and Levi will actually have a portion in Israel when the land of Israel is settled, but that this apportionment will involve a scattering of them in Israel. So they're not being ejected from Israel. They will be in Israel, but scattered At least they will be given a place in the land of Canaan, which is a grace. And it's a grace that they'll actually be scattered to as a protection for themselves. Jacob knows what evil Simeon and Levi are capable of when they assemble together and can feed off of each other's energy. So he concludes that their descendants need to be broken up. He concludes that Simeon and Levi should not be given an inheritance side by side in the land of Canaan, and he wants them to have a more scattered existence in the land than the other tribes will experience for their own protection and the protection of others. In Joshua chapter 19 and verse 9, we're told that the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance being surrounded by Judah on every side was a mercy for Simeon's descendants rather than giving them an inheritance next to Levi's descendants and speaking of being scattered we learn in 2nd Chronicles chapter 34 verse 6 that some of Simeon's descendants were located partly among the northern tribes as well. We also learn that some of Simeon's descendants came to live in the land that belonged to the Edomites and Amalekites outside of the land of Canaan at a later point in history. As for Levi, his descendants, as many of you know, were not given a single allotment of land like the other tribes received But the Levites were given 48 towns scattered throughout the entirety of the land of Israel among the 12 tribes, and this was a merciful protection for them to save them, in a sense, from themselves. They would be more likely to thrive spiritually scattered among the other tribes rather than being together in one region allotted to them. As for the Levites, God would later honor them by giving them the role of serving in the priestly function for Israel. Moses and Aaron will descend from Levi as will the sons of Korah, who were the worship leaders in Israel in later times, playing musical instruments and with their voices and instruments, Leading the people of Israel in worship, 11 of the Psalms that are in the Psalter were written by the sons of Korah who were descendants of Levi. In addition to that, we learn in Revelation chapter 7, verse 7, that there will be 12,000 men of the tribe of Simeon and 12,000 men from the tribe of Levi who will be among God's faithful witnesses during the coming tribulation period and again we learn in Revelation 21:12 that Simeon and Levi will have their names written on two of the gates of the new Jerusalem. This is grace for Simeon and Levi. Nonetheless, though there is blessing in Simeon and Levi's future and though there is some good in Jacob's words to them here in Genesis 49, it would be obvious to all of Jacob's sons listening in that the rights of firstborn will not be going to Reuben or to Simeon or to Levi. That's clear up to this point. From one standpoint, this whole final blessing event in Genesis 49 is not going very well. Jacob starts with Reuben and points to his sin and says, you've disqualified yourself from the rights of firstborn. Jacob rebukes Simeon and Levi for their sin and says, they're going to have a scattered existence in Israel. Who's the next son for Jacob to speak to? Whoever he is must have been wincing at the thought of what Jacob might say to him. Well, next up is Judah. And imagine what Judah had to have been feeling at this point of the proceedings. After all, Judah was the one who had convinced his brothers to sell Joseph to some Ishmaelite traders who were traveling down to Egypt. Judah was the son who went off and married a Canaanite wife and had three sons through her. The first of Judah's sons was killed by God after he married Tamar because he was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah's second son was killed by God for an act of wickedness with regard to Tamar, whom he had just taken as his wife. And to compound matters further, Judah failed to keep his promise to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and give his third son to her when his third son came of age, thereby leaving Tamar with a broken promise and without any hope of ever having a child. So Tamar dressed herself up as a prostitute, and she sat herself by the gate of the city thinking to herself that Judah was just the kind of man who would want to sleep with such a woman. And Judah, sure enough, saw her and approached her and asked to have sex with her in exchange for some goods. She agrees to the deal and becomes pregnant. And long story short, Judah's shameful unfaithfulness to his promise and his shameful act with Tamar soon became public knowledge. Was Judah any better than Reuben or Simeon or Levi Not at all. But there was one thing that distinguished Judah from his three older brothers. Reuben, the oldest, did what he did, and there's no record of him repenting of his actions. Simeon and Levi did what they did, and when Jacob rebuked them for it, they defended themselves, showing no signs of repentance. Judah, however, whose sins were just as bad showed repentance when his sin was exposed by Tamar Judah said she is more righteous than I in Genesis 38:26 socially and legally Judah had all the power in this dispute with Tamar yet he publicly declares She is more righteous than I. In a male-dominated society such as this was, this was truly an astounding thing for a man to speak this way in a dispute with a woman, declaring for all to hear, she is more righteous than I. In addition to that incident, when Judah and his brothers had reached the throes of despair before Joseph in Egypt, it was Judah who said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants in Genesis 44, 16, using language that included his and his brother's sin against Joseph two decades prior. In other words, Judah stood out among his brothers as a man who knew how to repent. And Judah demonstrated the fruit of that repentance with the transformed life It was Judah who offered himself up as a surety for Benjamin to his father when they were about to go down to Egypt, offering to receive judgment upon himself if anything bad happened to Benjamin. It was Judah who offered to suffer in prison in the place of Benjamin so that Benjamin could return to his father. Nonetheless, Judah had to be wincing and his heart had to be racing as his father's eyes now turn from Reuben, Simeon, Levi, now to him. And Judah had to be blown away by what he hears his father say to him. This brings us to the third prophetic affirmation that Jacob speaks in his final words of blessing to his first four sons, Number three, he foretells that Judah will experience honor and triumph. Listen to the first thing Jacob says to Judah Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down to you. We miss this in the English translations but judah's name is actually derived from the hebrew word for praise which is the very word that jacob uses here in verse 8 when he says that his brothers will praise him and interestingly this word for praise is almost always used in the old testament to speak of praising god and only rarely is it used to speak of praising men This is an exalted word for praise. And Jacob, it seems, is foretelling of a day when a very exalted form of praise is going to come to Judah. When Jacob says, your father's son shall bow down to you, Jacob is referring to all of the tribes of Israel who will descend from Judah's other brothers. Jacob is predicting that a day is coming when the descendants of Judah's brothers will bow down in homage to a particular descendant of Judah. This kind of language clearly implies that someone among Judah's descendants will eventually ascend to rule over all of the 12 tribes of Israel with a rule that will be recognized by all of them. And this prophecy that Jacob is speaking here will experience Its first layer of fulfillment about 640 years from right now, when David rises up and unites the 12 tribes of Israel and rules as king over them all. That said, there will be enemies to overcome in Judah's path to power, but Judah will prevail over these enemies. Jacob says to Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This kind of language represents conquest. In later Old Testament history, there will be two occasions when David is praising God for his victories, and he will say to God, you, this is in the Hebrew text, you won't find it in most English translations, but he will say to God, you gave me the necks of my enemies. Indicating that David clearly saw his triumph, his conquest as a fulfillment of what Jacob is prophesying here in Genesis 49, because David was a descendant of Judah. Well, Judah had to have been thrilled at these Words that he hears from his father as his father begins speaking to him. But Jacob started off with pretty good words for Reuben also. What will Jacob say next to Judah? Will it be good or will it be bad? This brings us to the fourth prophetic affirmation that Jacob speaks in his final words of blessing to his first four sons. Number four, he, Jacob, foretells that Judah will become powerful, and achieve rest. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. And that word translated whelp speaks of a cub or a young lion who is on his way to becoming a full-grown lion. Jacob then says, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. Jacob seems to be saying that Judah has at some earlier point captured his prey and achieved a tremendous conquest. And from that point of victory, Jacob is saying, you've gone up ever since. In other words, Judah has been on the rise and growing stronger ever since that moment of conquest. The victory or the conquest that Jacob is referring to here maybe the moment when Judah said about Tamar, She is more righteous than I, and may also include the moment when Judah said to Joseph, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Whatever it is, Jacob is saying that Judah has experienced a major moment of conquest or victory that has caused him to grow from a cub into a lion and has been on the rise ever since. Judah has also experienced genuine rest since that conquest. In verse 9, Jacob says of Judah, he couches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up with a full stomach. Experiencing fullness, Judah is described as lying down to rest as a full-grown lion. And he has become so formidable of a lion that Jacob says, who dares to wake him up? Only a fool, Jacob says, would trifle with Judah and dare to rouse him because he is so powerful Throughout history the lion has served as a powerful symbol of royalty and might. This was true in the ancient near east and we see this in the bible also in the book of numbers and ezekiel and micah and in revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 Jesus himself who was a descendant of Judah is referred to as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah meaning that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's words that he is speaking here, who achieves the ultimate conquest and becomes formidable as a result. What is implied in the imagery of verse 9 becomes explicitly stated in verse 10, this brings us to the fifth prophetic affirmation of Jacob in his final words, a blessing spoken to his first four sons. Number five, he, Jacob, foretells that Judah will have the scepter until the Messiah comes. These are amazing words in verse 10. Jacob now looks into the future and he speaks the following in verse 10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter, as you know, is a symbol of royalty, and it represents the king's right to rule. It was called the ruler's staff, and Jacob uses that word here. The ruler's staff is what a king would hold while seated on his throne during an official session in his court. And the king would often hold the ruler staff in a way that the base of it was on the floor between his feet. In verse 10, Jacob is saying that a king will one day arise from among the descendants of Judah. And once that king arises from Judah, the right to rule as king will never be removed from Judah And given to another tribe. Jacob says that this situation will prevail until Shiloh comes. This doesn't mean that the descendants of Judah will cease ruling after Shiloh comes, but simply that the ruler's staff will belong to Judah all the way up until Shiloh comes. This expression, until Shiloh comes, can be understood in different ways by commentators. It could be translated, as the New American Standard says, until Shiloh comes, with Shiloh serving as a proper name for a coming one who brings shalah, or rest. Some divide up the word Shiloh into the word shay, which means tribute, and then lo, which means to him. And so they translate Jacob as saying, until he comes, the one to whom tribute belongs. Regardless of how we translate Jacob's statement here in Genesis 49.10, we should appreciate what the Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna says, who, by the way, is no believer in Jesus. When he, Nahum Sarna, says, and I quote, an early tradition found in texts from Qumran and the Targums and in rabbinic literature sees in Shiloh a messianic title, unquote. In fact, a fourth century Jewish text translates this verse as saying, until Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom, and to him shall the nations obey. And with that interpretation, Christians can wholeheartedly agree. The statement by Jacob is predicting that kingly rule will be given to Judah, and it will not be taken away from Judah until Shiloh, the rest-giving one, comes, the one to whom tribute belongs. And to this one, Jacob says, shall be the obedience of the people's not just the obedience of Judah's brothers and their descendants, not just the obedience of the people of Israel, but the obedience of the peoples. In other words, the nations, all the nations of the world. Jacob is talking about how the Messiah will bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation under his rule. And they will acknowledge his right to be king. And they will give to him their happy obedience. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who died on a cross and was raised from the dead and thereby crowned as king by God, the father who raised him. God then ascended Jesus to his own right hand where Jesus now rules from on high. And people the world over are now being brought person by person into obedience to the kingship of Jesus. To us who are saved, we've been brought into obedience to the lion of the tribe of Judah. To us who are saved, Jesus speaks to us and he calls us to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything. Everything he has said. Think about that. Every time you share the gospel with another individual and call them to faith in Christ, every time you disciple a person who has come to faith in Christ, you are participating in the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy here being used by God to further his plan to bring about the obedience of the peoples of the world to Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It gets even better than this, and this brings us to the final prophetic affirmation that Jacob voices in his final words of blessing to his first four sons. Number six, he, Jacob, foretells that Judah's Messiah will bring lavish abundance and good health. He will both experience and bring lavish abundance, extravagant abundance, and good health. Listen to what Jacob says in verse 11, speaking about Judah, and in particular also speaking about the coming Messiah king who descends from Judah. Jacob says he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Isn't that amazing? Actually, this is an amazing picture. Under normal conditions, a person would never want to hitch his donkey to a grapevine because the donkey would feast on the grapes. No one would ever want to do this. It would be a wasteful thing to do. The fact that the Messiah will hitch his donkey to even the choice vine indicates that grapevines will be so abundant that it won't even matter. The kind of language that Jacob is using here seems to describe what life will be like in the millennial kingdom under Jesus, the Messiah, where the natural order of creation will be so altered as to bring about an abundance greater than the world can even imagine right now an abundance in which lush grapevines are so prevalent that grapevines will serve as hitching posts for donkeys who feast upon the grapes and no one will care beyond that we Don't tend to think today of a donkey as being an impressive animal, but keep in mind that this animal was associated with royalty. When Solomon entered Jerusalem as king, he came riding on a donkey. We even see in the period of the judges that the leaders rode on donkeys. In Zechariah 9-9, we're told that the Messiah, when he comes, will come riding on a donkey. And here in our passage today, we see the Messiah Hitching his donkey to a choice vine because his kingdom is so lush and so prosperous. That a choice vine is a great hitching post. Think about that, guys. If the donkeys have it this good under the reign of the Messiah, imagine how good the citizens of his kingdom will have it. That's the extravagance and the blessing of living under the reign of Jesus Christ, both now and in the future and for all eternity. If that isn't a sufficient picture of abundance, Jacob speaks of Judah's Messiah, and he says in verse 11 that he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. In other words, wine will be so abundant that it will be used as laundry water to scrub clothing with. Imagine how lush the vegetation will be under the Messiah when a choice grapevine serves as a hitching post for a donkey and wine is as plentiful as laundry water. Some writers see in this verse an allusion to military conquest. Also, the expression, the blood of grapes could speak of the Messiah's violent trampling of his enemies. In fact, we will be told in Revelation that when Christ returns to earth, he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Listen to Jacob's final prophetic statement regarding Judah and more specifically of the Messiah who descends from him. In verse 12, he says, His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. The New American Standard Translation translates the Hebrew as saying that his eyes are dull from wine. Uh, Other translations take this as a reference to the deep, dark color of his eyes, which are darker than wine healthy eyes. The Greek Septuagint uses, they, they uh, use the translators use the root word for joy to translate the Hebrew word here. They translated the first part of verse 12 to say, his eyes are glad from wine or his eyes are sparkling joyfully with wine or from wine. Jacob also says his teeth are white from milk which could mean white from drinking milk or white with milk or whiter than milk. You make your choice. Regardless of how you understand this, the picture here is one of wholesomeness and abundance and joy and health. Interestingly, the people of Judah will end up settling in the very part of the land of Canaan that produced the best wine In all of the land of Canaan, it was the part of the land where milk flowed as well. And the appearance of the people of Judah came to reflect the physical vitality that came from this kind of bounty that the earth produced in this region of the land of Canaan. And this will be all the more true in the messianic age, the world over. And the Messiah himself will reflect this bounty In his own countenance as well. By the way, notice all the allusions to wine in verses 11 and 12. If you're seeing wine everywhere in this picture, it's not because you're obsessed with wine. It's really there. The word vine is used twice in verse 11. The word wine and the blood of grapes are used in verse 11. The word wine is used again in verse 12. These allusions to wine are part of what makes Jesus' very first miracle in John chapter 2 so significant. Think about it. What was Jesus' first miracle that he performed? The first sign, turning water into wine. The wine at a wedding had run out, and Jesus fixed that by turning water into wine. In other words, he made wine as plentiful as water. And he didn't just turn water into wine that was okay. He turned water into very good wine. And it was after doing that miracle that we're told that his disciples believed in him. Why? Why did they believe in him after that miracle? Well, because they realized that this is the one about whom Jacob spoke in Genesis 49 11 and 12. They realize that this is the one who will make wine as plentiful as water. This is the one who will usher in an abundance of wine that will never ever run out. It's not surprising then at the very end of Jesus' ministry on the night in which he was arrested, we see him doing what? We see him holding a cup of wine and saying to his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me he's bidding us to drink of this wine it turns out that the ultimate red wine that the messiah Jesus the lion of the tribe of judah provides for us to drink is the wine of his blood from which we receive sustenance. This wine will never run out. And guys, it goes deeper than just washing clothes. It washes the hearts of God's people clean from sin. Sprinkles and cleanses our consciences from the stain of sin. And it never runs out. There'll never be a day decades from now when you come to God with your sin and he's like, you know what? I ran out of the supply of the blood of my son to cleanse you today. That'll never happen. And this same Jesus at the Last Supper points us to his coming future kingdom and says to his disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. In my father's kingdom. He wants us to look forward to drinking wine with him in his kingdom. I love that Jesus makes this promise. I love that he makes this promise to abstain from wine until he can drink it together with us in his kingdom. I personally look forward to that day. In my 55 years of life. I've never experienced the joy of drinking wine, and I'm looking forward to enjoying my first cup with Jesus when I can drink it new with him in his kingdom. And all of us who know Jesus and have been saved by him will know the joy of feasting sumptuously with him forever and the abundance of his kingdom where the wine will never run out. Now, let us not lose sight as we close of Judah sitting here listening to these words from his father. These transcendent words of prophecy that his father is speaking to him in Genesis 49. Imagine how Judah felt hearing these amazing words. I'm sure that Judah in his lowest moments of brokenness never imagined the exalted words of blessing that are now being spoken over him. By his father and the power of the Holy Spirit. In all of Jacob's words to Judah, there's not the slightest whisper of Judah's sins. He had to have expected it. They never came. It seems that those sins have been removed from Judah as far as the east is from the west. And all that is left for Judah is to stare at the Messiah who is called Shiloh, the giver of rest, the giver of abundance. And what is good news for Judah is also good news for Reuben and Simeon and Levi, who are also listening in and hearing Jacob's words to Judah. Jacob's words to Judah mean that they too will have a savior and the Messiah whom God will send. And you here in this room this morning can have that same savior too. If you're willing to repent as Judah did and give your obedience to this one, this lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, well, what do I need to do to obey him? Give me the list. Jesus says, here you go. Believe in me. And out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Believe in me. And you will never hunger or thirst for anything else again. Believe in me and you will have life more abundantly. Believe in me and I will give you shalah. I will give you rest. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And you will find rest for your soul. That's the list. And if God can take a man like Judah who committed the awful sins that he committed and speak these words of astonishing good news to Judah, then God can speak the same good news over you this morning. The truth is that Christ has found out your iniquity just as he found out Judas and he has provided his shed blood at the cross to wash all of your iniquity away. If you will only repent of your sins and call upon his name and believe in him as your Lord and your savior. And I ask you this morning, if you've never done that, will you do that today? Will you respond to this call and believe in him today as an ambassador of God, I plead with you today believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Shiloh and be saved. And the blessing of Jacob that he speaks over Judah will belong to you in fullest measure. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the the truth that you, from everlasting to everlasting, are God. You are the God of history, and what we're seeing in our passage today is history in embryonic form, and we're living on the other side of the fulfillment of these amazing words that Jacob is speaking to Judah. We know what the fulfillment of these words looks like. And the fulfillment is far more astounding than probably what Jacob and certainly Judah could have even begun to imagine. You have provided for us a great salvation, Lord, through a great Savior who came to earth being born as a baby of the tribe of Judah and lived the life we failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die and was raised from the dead and exalted to your throne where he reigns from on high and is now bringing people from around the world into a state of obedience to him. I pray, Lord, that you would touch hearts in this room and draw men and women to yourself that they, too, would become delighted subjects underneath your bountiful reign of lavish abundance that they would taste of your amazing goodness and experience the kind of fullness that is described in these verses. And for those of us who know you, Lord, make us a people who truly, genuinely believe in the bounty of your heart and who receive of your goodness and who happily abide under your delicious rule. Make us all in this room, repenters of sin. And experience the conquest that comes from such repentance and that from those low points of repentance that we would then go up the way that Jacob says Judah did and then find rest the way Jacob describes that Judah found rest. And then all the blessing that follows. May that be our daily. Practice. In our daily experience, only you can accomplish this in us, and so we ask you to do this good work in us, and we'll give you all the glory. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give to you a portion of what you have wonderfully blessed us with financially. Receive what we give in this offering and do much with all that is given for the glory of Jesus. Use it to advance your cause the cause of Jesus Christ in this community and around the world through the missionaries that we're blessed to support and glorify yourself through what we give. But of all that we give, Lord, may we first and foremost give ourselves to you in loving surrender and obedience to you, the great lion of the tribe of Judah. We do so in the name of Of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen.